0: You are listening to audio provided by Valley Dell Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Uh, this past Wednesday night, I was down in I, I thought it was Oxford, some said Aniston. Where I was at a church preaching. And um, I want you to look at this first song. On the first song, the first verse of the first song, uh, all these guys came down. Now the, there's a, a space there. And then there are steps on the other side. The ladies were on the other side. And I don't know if they, I don't know if they divided them up or what. But I just took a picture of the guys. I was impressed with guys at an altar. All of these guys, and all of these guys got up and left. And another whole group came. And that whole group got up and left. And another whole, through the entire song service, these young guys. And I don't think I counted, but maybe three that looked uh, old like me. Uh, they were all in their 20s and 30s that were there at the altar praying. And I knew when I saw that on the first thing, it really caught my attention. Uh, I took the picture there. I was standing right there behind them so that when I gave the invitation, they were all at the altar like that. There was a second row behind them. There was a third row behind the second row. So that that night there in the church where we were, Uh, God just really moved among the people. And I wondered, you know, God, why did you move like that? And I thought to myself, because of this right here. They're praying before they ever even get to the word of God. Uh, In the midst of their praise, they're on their knees praying uh, before they ever get to the sermon so that by the time the sermon is preached, they're ready for it. And by the time the invitation is given, uh, they move. They move. Now, last week, I talked about revival. Uh, There there was a great spirit there that night. Uh, I'd love to say it was a spirit of revival. but In some ways, I guess it was. Uh, But uh, we looked at that last week because I had a lot of people ask the question, uh, what exactly is revival? I remember revival services. We went to revival meetings. We had revival when I was young. No, you didn't have revival when you were young. You had meetings when you were young. Uh, None of us here that I know of really have ever been in a place where revival has broken out. Uh, Most likely, none of our generation has really seen it. I I do know a dear sweet lady, good friend of ours. She is in her 90s now. She was the daughter of a missionary family to China. And in the 20s, uh, the Shantung revival broke out in China. It lasted 10 years It went to every single province of China. And I remember Miss Sarah talking to me and telling me that they, as children, would look through the cracks in the floor as the missionaries gathered in the house uh, for prayer during the Shantung revival. It's interesting to me that God prepared China uh, for the takeover of communism by preparing it through revival. Uh, I'd love to get off on that and talk a little bit about that, but I want to get you to Galatians this morning because while I talked about, you know, what is revival, and I gave you two things that precede revival. They don't guarantee revival. Revival is a sovereign act of God. God decides that. We don't decide that. But we can put ourselves in the place to where God would move in in our hearts or in our congregation, in the life of our church. One was reform; Some things had to go. The other was recommitment. That is, I recommit myself. That's what Hezekiah was doing in 2 Kings chapter 18. As he put his trust in God, as he clung to the Lord, the Bible says, uh, so that nobody uh, clung to the Lord or trusted in the Lord, the Bible says, uh, like he did before or after him. Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what sets up. Now, we really didn't see the revival there. It comes over in 2 Chronicles, beginning in chapter 29, 30, and 31. But what you saw was a, the, the beginning, uh, the things that preceded revival, the twofold things there that we looked at last week. And that's what revival is. It is, if you remember Richard Owen Roberts' definition, it is an extraordinary move of the Spirit of God that produces an extraordinary um, result. God does something. God shows up in the midst of his people, and it does something. Well, that's what I want you to see this morning. I want to show you the why of revival. Why do we need revival? And that's going to be covered in... uh, Galatians chapter five. So if you're there, uh, we need it because we have simply lost our passion for God, the things of God. We've we've lost it. It's, we don't have that first love like we used to. That's what the resurrected Christ says to the church at Ephesus. Some of you were just there with us. He speaks to the church that was there in Ephesus and he says, you've left your first love. In other words, it's not like you... You were, you are not like you were when you first came to me. Do you remember what it was like when you first came to Christ? I remember trusting Christ at 12 years of age. Uh, I remember very well a a, a revival that we were holding, a revival meeting that we were having at our church. Now listen, when I was a kid, we had revival services in the morning and in the evening for two weeks. I was looking to see if anybody pass out. I will say, "Oh no, Lord, please don't do that here. Uh, we'd, have, we'd have services in the morning. And I'd go to those services with my dad and my best friend. A bunch of us would go to those in the morning. And then we'd walk across the street to the school uh, for the day. And then we'd go back to church that night. And I can tell you, I can remember at 14 years of age, God was really moving and working in my life. There was a 14-year-old young man, or he looked to be 14, 15, maybe 16, that came up to me out here in the lobby after the service and he said, Pastor, I've just come to tell you God called me to that altar today, and I didn't go, and I'm sorry. I regret that I didn't. So I prayed with him. I talked with him. I said, what's God saying to you? I shared with you last week, it begins in our young people. I don't know why it starts there. Hezekiah was only 25 when revival broke out in Jerusalem and among the people of Judah. But we need it because we've lost that first love. He says, go back and do the things that you did at the beginning. You can read this in Revelation chapter 2. Go back because you've lost your passion. You've lost your love. You've lost your intensity. You don't have that hunger, that desire, that drive like you used to. It used to be there. It once was there, but it's kind of waned. You've walked away from it. In fact, look over here, if you would, at Galatians chapter 1, and listen to what Paul begins to say to him there. He says in verse 6, of chapter 1, I'm amazed. I, he said, I'm just in shock. You have so quickly deserted him who called you by grace, the grace of Christ. You, you've, you've, uh, you've drifted away. You've walked away. You've, you've left uh, your passion behind. You've gotten involved in other things. Everything else is more important. Everything else is a greater concern. Everything else must come first, You've given up on the gathering of the people of God together. And listen, some of you are right here. You happen to show up on a rainy, stormy Sunday morning, and some of you are there and say, well, normally I just stay in bed because the bed, the sleep, the rest, that thing, more important than the fellowship of God's people to you. I walked away from the Word of God. I used to read it every day. I used to pray every day. There was a sweet time of it, but I skipped a day, and then I skipped a week, and then I've skipped a month, and I really don't do it much anymore at all, if I do it at all, just when there are some tough times I'm going through. Where are you spiritually? That's why we need revival. That's why Paul writes the churches in Galatia. And to the churches in Galatia, he, he's coming and he says, listen, something has happened in you. And something has happened in your fellowship. And it's really a twofold split that had taken place there. I'm going to show you the first one. And it happened to be the Judaizers that had come into the church after Paul had established the churches. These Jews came in. The, the Galatians were all Gentiles. And so the Jews come in who uh, walked into their fellowships and they said this, listen, let me tell you, we're we're glad that you Gentiles have realized that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not all that there is to it. Now, Paul gave you that, but uh, the fact of the matter is there's a little more to it than that. You're going to have to become Jewish. You're going to have to get circumcised. And he uses that as to push the law. They use that whole issue of circumcision. You read it in here. What you're reading is you're reading about the law. You've got to keep the law. There's certain things in the law that you're going to have to keep. You're going to have to be circumcised. You're going to have to keep this festival and this celebration, and you're going to have to keep this law and do this thing and do that thing, and then you add that to what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you can be saved. Now, that's what they were doing in the church at Galatia. That's why he starts this letter off. He says, I'm just stunned. I'm amazed. I'm in shock that you have deserted him who called you by grace. So he comes in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5 is really divided into three parts. The um, The first 12 verses deal with the legalism that was there. They just depended on the legalism. Look at this. Verse 1, chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, because of that, hey, listen, you've been set free from this stuff. Just remember you were saved not by the law. You were saved by grace. Uh, and because you've been set free, therefore, keep standing firm. Take a stand Spiritually. Don't be subjected again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back into the bondage of legalism. Now watch what he says, verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you have received circumcision, or if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now I told you circumcision is the whole concept of legalism. If you think that by keeping the law you are going to be saved, stop talking about Jesus. Just stop talking about him don't mention him again. Don't say anything else about Jesus again. I say to you, if you've received circumcision, thinking that you're going to be saved by that, Christ is no benefit to you. Christ is no good to you. You think you're going to be saved by the law. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Now he comes and he says, let me tell you something, guys. You think that you're going to be saved by law? Here it is. You've got to keep The whole law, every single bit of it you've got to keep. And you've got to keep it to the depth to satisfy the glory of God. And if you think you can do that, what you're thinking is this, you can be perfect like Jesus Christ was perfect. And we know that ain't so. But that's what he's saying. You've got it in your mind. You've got it in your head now that you're going to be saved by your works. You have been, look at verse 4, you've been severed from Christ. And he's talking about circumcision. He says, now it's no longer just the cutting away of flesh. Now you've cut Christ away from you. You've been severed from Christ. You who were seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. Now let me explain that, you've fallen from grace, because we use it one way, and Paul has used it in an entirely different way. When we say, well, he's fallen from grace, normally what we're saying is this, he's lost his salvation. And let me tell you something, if you're saved by grace, you cannot lose your salvation. So you say, well, what is, what is he saying here? What does this mean? What does the phrase mean? Well, you, we use the phrase to speak of bad people. Paul uses it to speak of people who think they are so good they don't need the grace of God because they are keeping the law. They are so perfectly keeping the law, we don't need it. So we have set grace aside. We don't need the grace of Jesus Christ. Why don't you need it? Because I am living out the law perfectly. Is that right? Maybe you ought to get up here and preach. I'd like to hear that. He says, that's what Satan has gotten you off into. These people have come in and he says, listen, It's just nothing but witchcraft. That's why he says, what has bewitched you so? Chapter 3. He says, you believe in some kooky stuff that you think that you can save yourself by your works. Well, I want to tell you something. There are a lot of Baptists and a lot of Baptist churches who think that they're going to earn their salvation by what they do. There's a preacher right here. Isn't that right, preacher? They think by being in church, Throwing a little something in the collection plate. You know, sing a hymn. I know all the verses, know all the stories, all of that. Listen, Paul says, if you're going to be saved by works, just stop thinking about Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first thing Satan does. That's what he's doing in the churches of Galatia. The other thing is the opposite extreme, and it picks up in verse 13 of chapter 5. And it's this. They think, listen, that I have freedom Verse 13, for you were called to freedom. Remember back verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He comes in verse 13, talks about this freedom. He says, you're no longer free. You're back into, under the bondage of the flesh now. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, he says, you, 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 you're, you're in the flesh. What you've done is you have abused the grace of God. You've misunderstood and you're misusing the grace of God. You are presuming on the grace of God that I can go out here and do anything I jolly well want to and then just run back into church and get on my knees. I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Okay, I'm forgiven. I'm going to run back out and get into it again. I'm going to go back out there and sin again. All I got to do, just shoot up. Whoop. Sorry. Forgive me. Okay. I'm good. Let's do it again. That's all I've got to do. That's all that there is. And I'm living in the abuse of God's grace by sinning over and over and over and thinking that God's going to say, okay, forgiven. Okay, forgiven. Okay, forgiven. Now, you're not going to like that. I wrote this sermon four times this week. Four different times I sat down to write this thing. And I want to tell you something. I don't write a sermon in an hour. It takes me days to write one. Days. But that's where we're living in the church. That's why we need revival. That's why we're desperate for a move of God. Because we've gotten away from our love, our passion, our interests, Our our heartbeat for the things of Jesus Christ, we've gotten away because some of us have come over to the place to where we are so perfect we're carrying out all the law and I don't need Jesus. Or we're over here thinking, I'm just gonna live life the way I wanna live life and all I've gotta do is shoot up a I'm sorry and it's all okay, it's all all right. I'm not gonna lose my salvation and everywhere in between. And you don't think we don't need revival? We are desperately in need of revival. Now, that's where the church is. That's where the church in Galatia was. And you say, what are we going to do with this? Because we've got this battle that is taking place within us. I've got a war that's taking place. As a Christian, let me tell you something. Once I've received the grace of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is now living in me, I want to tell you, I've got a battle going on in my life. I've got a war taking place. That's why he comes down in verse 17 and he says this. Now, listen, folks, let me tell you something. I'm just giving you introduction. I'm introducing to you where we're going. This whole sermon is an introduction to where we're going to start next week. And what we're doing is this. We're working toward the fruit of the Spirit. Not going to look at the deeds of the flesh because I don't need to teach you that. No, no, nobody needs to teach you that. We got that down. We worked that thing pretty good. What we don't have down is we don't have down the fruit of the Spirit That will be the result of revival in your personal life. So now Paul comes to this church, and this church, these Christians are in battle. That's why you have so many agitated, upset, angry, confused, uh, touchy, touchy Christians in the church, because they got a battle going on. The flesh sets itself against the, the spirit and the spirit sets itself against the desires of the flesh. And in the Christian life, when I get off and I think, well, I'm going to be this perfect little person and I keep the law and I sit in judgment on everybody else because I keep the whole law. Or I'm over here and I'm in sin. Let me tell you something. You, you get touchy. You get irritable. That's, what, that's what's going on in a lot of your marriages right now. Is that there's sin in your life, but you as a Christian, you can't get along with your mate. You can't get along with a guy at work. You can't get along with the neighbor next door. You can't get along. There is all of this upset. That's what's happening in Galatians. I'd never seen that before this week. They were upset with Paul, the guy that led them to Christ, the guy that established the church, the guy that started the churches in Galatians. You know what he does in the first two chapters of Galatians? He just defends his apostleship. Paul, you're not really an apostle. You're not really an apostle. And so for the first two chapters, he goes back and shows them, I am an apostle. I was called by Jesus Christ. Then he comes in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and do you know what he does there? He goes back to the Old Testament, and he gives them examples from Abraham and Moses. And he says, listen, let me tell you something. What I am preaching to you, what I preach to you, when you were saved by grace in Christ is all through the Old Testament. How do you think Abraham was saved? Listen to what he says here. Verse 6, chapter 3, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't all the altars that he built. It wasn't all the sacrifices that he did. It wasn't all the tithe that he gave. Abraham was saved because he put his faith in God, not his work. He didn't even know, you know, he didn't even know how all this thing was going to turn out. He puts his faith in God. And listen, here's the whole picture. You want to see how God worked in his life at 100 years of age? His wife, 90 years of age. God says, you're going to have that baby. And listen, what does she do? She laughs. She's not laughing about herself. She's laughing thinking about Abraham doing this. I'm just telling you that's there. It's in the Bible. She laughs at She's laughing at Abraham to think he's going to give me pleasure. That's what it says in the word. Listen, and do you know what Abraham does? He said, "Oh God, if this is going to happen, you're going to have to help me. Yeah. Here I am. I'm a 100-year-old man." He, and he's just saying, and what happened? They come up expecting the child, and what's he called? The child of promise. Because out of him's going to come what? Messiah. <laughs> Messiah's going to come out of him. And so he says, "Look, he did that. Listen, Abraham didn't have the physical ability to do that at 100 years of age. By faith, he trusted God and ended up with a kid at 100 years age. Now, that's, that's ground for just about shooting yourself right there. <laughs> at 64, it'd be grounds for shooting myself, I can tell you. Well, he proves What I've preached to you is grace. It's in the Old Testament. Now he comes and he says, this is what's happened. You're all out of sorts. Because you're walking in the flesh and you're trying to walk by the Spirit. And listen, you're torn between the two. Do you know what it is? It hit me this morning coming to church about 5 o'clock this morning. I stopped at a red light. My car just cut off. Now, I didn't normally think about it. Um, I don't normally think about it, but the car, it was so quiet, nothing else out there on the road, and the car just cut off. Do you know why it cut off? I've got two sources of power in my car. One's a gasoline engine. The other is a battery. And I determine when I take my foot off the brake, or if I take my foot off the brake, when the greater power is going to kick in, and that's the gasoline engine. And it cranks back up. you got two powers working in your life, Christian. One is the Holy Spirit of God. That is that, that's the real power. Uh, but you put the brakes on on the Holy Spirit, and you know what happens? The other power takes over. Now, have y'all got that illustration? Do you see what I'm saying here? It's exactly what Paul is saying here in chapter 5. You're running a hybrid life. you got two powers working in your life. And it's going to work there. Listen, you can't do anything about this body of flesh until Jesus comes back or you die. But let me tell you, while you have a body of flesh, you don't have to be in bondage to it. That's the thing. Did the light just come on? I don't have to do what my body tells me I want to do. Let me show you now in the last 13 minutes that I've got. I'm going to go to the text. Now, I've set this all up. I want you to see. This is what he's saying to him. He's saying what you're doing, verse 15, you're biting and devouring one another. You can't get along in the fellowship. You're constantly at each other's throat. You're eating each other up. Why? Because you're living in the flesh. When you should take your foot off the brake and let the Spirit's power work through you. Verse 16, look at the reality of the flesh. It's real. But I say walk by the Spirit. He wouldn't tell you to walk in the Spirit if there was not a reality of the flesh. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, I've said this before. There's a grammatical construction here, two little words that Paul loves to use all over the New Testament. And I've shared with you before that in Greek class we called it Paul's cuss word. We don't know what it is. Uh, it's just, we just know it's very demonstrative, it's very strong, and Paul is saying, the, the two little words are ume. He comes and he says right here, listen, you will not carry out ume, you will not, it is for certain you will not, so that you could literally translate this verse, if you walk by the Spirit, you will in no way, no chance, absolutely not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, that's the intensity of what he's saying. The flesh is real. There's a reality to it. And the only way you're going to have any kind of victory over it is that you're going to have to walk by the Spirit, the Spirit that lives in you. What is the Spirit of God in me doing? It desires, it hungers for righteousness. It thirsts for righteousness in my life. It hungers for righteousness in my life. It is driving me toward righteousness in my life. That's why he says, walk by the Spirit. The word there is parapateo, uh, the word podiatrist. You go to a podiatrist, you've gone to a foot doctor. Parapateo, walk in the Spirit. It's a present, active, indicative, it's a command, it's not a suggestion. It's a present active imperative. That is, this is continually in your life. Every day you get up, this is what you discipline yourself to do. I'm gonna walk by the Spirit in the direction toward the will of God. Now, let me just, let me just be honest with you. Some days I walk in the direction of Christ by the Spirit and I'll walk a mile or two. I'll cover some ground. But there are other days when I'm just making a couple of feet. It's a struggle. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm struggling with that. But this is what the Word of God is telling me. The flesh is real, and the only way to, listen, that I'm going to have any victory here is that I determine that I am going to walk in the Spirit of God today. That's my decision. I've got to take my foot off the brake and let the real power kick in. Here's the second thing. Number two, secondly, the intensity of the battle. The battle is real. Look at verse 17. He comes and he says this, for the flesh sets itself, uh, its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. There's this battle, this back and forth that's going on in my life. This spirit has set itself against the flesh. The flesh sets itself against the spirit. And there's a real battle. Now, let me just show you something here. Do this. Put your finger right there in Galatians chapter 5. Go back to Romans chapter 7 for just a minute. Listen, I want you to listen to Paul. Now, this is Paul writing. He said, Well, now, preacher, you don't have to live with this. Paul didn't have to live with it. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You just ought to be a preacher for a day. I battle it, I fight it constantly there's a constant battle and I want to tell you something the last two weeks have just been intense in my own personal life why because I'm preaching revival that's why I'm gonna preach on love next Sunday (laughs) I want some loving (laughs) I, I want something pleasant Uh, So here, preaching on revival is tough. It's hard. Listen to what he says now. Paul, Romans 7, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, Paul's saying that. You know that's true of us. Wait a minute. Amen. Amen. Listen, it may be raining outside, but you don't have to be a drip in here. Come on. All right? Listen. I know nothing good dwells in me, That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. This just gets all over me. Does it you? Look at verse 19. Well, if if that doesn't wear you out enough, look at verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want to do. If I'm doing the very thing I do not want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it. Sin which dwells in me. I find the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good, I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. I see a different law in my members of my body. Paul, listen, Paul just is confessing. This is good stuff right here. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this, this war that's raging in my life Who's going to get control of this thing? Take your foot off the brake. Let the real power begin to move in your life. That's what Paul is saying here. He comes and he says, listen, the battle is intense. Satan is real. I struggle daily with sin, all kinds of sin, not just one sin, but a multitude of sin. Now, are y'all listening? Are you there? Okay. I'm going to give you... This is where I hope you've got something to write with. Because I'm going to give you five plans of the enemy for your life. And then I'm going to show you the one thing that Paul is saying in this entire chapter. And I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to go home. Now, watch this. There are five things. Five things to the battle plan. Uh, William Perkins was a great Puritan preacher. He taught at Cambridge, uh, wrote a great book on preaching, um, the art of prophesying uh, back in the late 1600s, early 1700s, Puritan uh, doing this. Um, and he's going to give you five things that I'm telling you I think will help you if you'll, if you'll, if you'll get this down. It'll help you walk through the battle plan of the enemy. Now Listen. Why is it it necessary to know the enemy's battle plan? Let me tell you why. Um, Let me take you back. Let me me give you an illustration. September 17th, 1862. The Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia was... uh, Lee's Army had no shoes. They were marching barefooted. They had no food. They were out of supplies. Um, their munitions were very low and Lee decides I'm going to invade Maryland because there's tons of food up in Maryland and there are tons of supplies and we're going to go there and uh, we're, we're going to be able to resupply our army and so he makes this incursion into Maryland into the north and as he goes in there he's got a battle plan. But what he's going to do is he's going to run up on uh, the federal army, the Army of the Potomac, under the general George McClellan. Now, McClellan was a mediocre general at best, just a mediocre general. Lee was, I mean, Lincoln was going to discover that. He's going to replace him. In fact, he replaces McClellan twice. That's the second time he's done with him. But he's going to replace McClellan because McClellan is no match for the tactical, strategic mind of Robert E. Lee. He's not a match for Jackson. He's not a match for Longstreet. He's not a match for A.P. Hill. He's not a match for anybody. Lee has half the army that, that McClellan has. And they show up at a place called Sharpsburg. Now, you don't know it as Sharpsburg. That's what the Confederates called it. It's, we know it by the Union name. It's called Antietam. The single bloodiest day in American history. Now, there were more people killed, captured, and wounded at Gettysburg, but that took place over three days. Antietam is the single bloodiest day in all of American history. Uh, You've got these two armies that meet there in a place called Antietam. It starts over on the Confederate left, and it sweeps from the cornfields, the Dunker Church. You know who the Dunker Church was? This is free. They were Anabaptists. They were our forefathers. That's why they called them Dunkers. They start, listen, they sweep up there, and they are met. The Union comes in massive force against the left of Lee. That battle is like a clock. It just sweeps like the hand of a clock across that battlefield until late afternoon Burnside comes across the stone bridge. But A.P. Hill has come up from Harper's Ferry and he drives Burnside back off the field. The day ends. Over 12,000 Union soldiers had been killed, wounded, or captured. Over 10,000 Confederates had been killed, wounded. Over 22,000 men that day either died, were severely wounded, or went to a prison camp. 22,000 in a day, in a day, casualties like that. How in the world did a mediocre general do that to the likes of Longstreet, Jackson, and Lee? Lee sat down and wrote his battle plans out. He took out two cigars and he wrapped the battle plans around the cigars. And he thought he stuck them back in the pocket. But they went through. And they fell out along the way. And two Union soldiers found the battle plans of Antietam that Lee had drawn up. And they took them to McClellan so that a very mediocre general could stand down a brilliant general. Let me tell you who a brilliant general is. Satan. We are no match for him. No match for him. Let me tell you something. Satan has hounded Calvin, Luther, Zwingli. He followed them all the way down to the grave. And when they were buried, he turned around, wiped his mouth and said, who's next? We are no match for the devil. But we got the plan. We got a battle plan here, so let me give it to you. You ready? Now, I've given you a long time to get a hold of a pen and something to write with. Number one, suggestion. Suggestion. Suggestions just pop into our head suggestions just come into our thought process all during the course of the day all kind of suggestions ideas pop into your mind it's not always satan listen to me carefully now there's enough sin in old mac brunson i don't need the devil i've got some ugly thoughts of my own that just pop in my head you don't have to amen do you see what i'm saying suggestions now listen The suggestion, number two, becomes a delight. You begin to delight in the suggestion. You begin to think about that and say, that's kind of pleasurable. That would feel good. That would be be really good right now. I would enjoy it. That would actually be good for me right now. Listen to what is said in Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable, she took She ate, she gave. I begin to sit there and think about the suggestion that has come into my mind. And as that suggestion comes into my mind, I begin to think about how pleasurable this might be, how enjoyable this might be. But let me tell you something, just at the suggestion and just at the level of looking at the suggestion and thinking that that would be pleasurable, I've not sinned as of yet. Now, the third step is consent. You you just don't fall into a sin and say, oh, gosh, I just sinned. Listen, this is a process. You're going to consent to the sin mentally before you ever do it physically. Before you ever practice sin, This is where it takes place. That's that's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he's saying, listen, let let me tell you what we do here. He's saying there are all these things that raise themselves up. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If you don't grab it right there at the point of consenting to it, you're going to be in trouble because number four is going to come the act. Here's the act. I'm going to yield to the temptation. I'm going to consent and yield to it and give myself to it. I'm going to commit the act. I'm going to do whatever it is that has come up in my mind. And listen, as a Christian, now the battle is no longer, do I do it, do I not do it? This isn't Christ's will for me. I, but listen, my flesh really would like it. It would feel so great, but that's not what God would have for you. L- let, me, let me tell you, at the act now, this becomes a different struggle and the struggle now, Is, oh, I've sinned against God. Why did I do? I get. I don't know about you. I get disgusted with a. I get disgusted with old, disgusting Mac Brunson. I go through the whole thing of guilt. I go through the whole thing of grief. I go through the whole thing of just being sick and disgusted with me. What was that that the darling sang? What was that song that the darling sang? Old, disgusting, sorry, no good me. You remember that? Y'all ought to go watch Mayberry. That's that's the eleventh commandment in the Bible. You know. Listen, old, disgusting, sorry, terrible, no good me. I've acted now. Number five, William Perkins says, "Don't persevere in your sin." Are you going to sin? Yes. I've got this body of flesh until I go to Jesus. But it doesn't have to control me. However, when I do sin, listen. Perseverance, persevere against it. Don't let sin become a habit in your life. Now, that's where a lot of us are. That's why we need revival. Sin has become just a habit in my life. My filthy mouth is a habit in my life. My filthy thought process and what I look at has become a habit in my life. Uh, being drawn to ugly things and nasty things and vulgar things sexually has become a habit in my life. Uh, being ugly to people, being, you know, someone without love, without concern, without, has become a habit in my life. Will you say, what's going to save us? Now, I've just given you the plan. Look at this, number three, victory. There is victory. The victory comes, and he's given it to us over and over. Paul's given it to you about eight times in this passage. Over and over. How am I going to have victory over the habitual sin in my life? I can't stop it. I can't quit it. I can't get off of it. I can't be done with it. Yes, you can. Listen to me. Yes, you can. Now, I didn't say it was going to be easy. you got to walk by what? Do you know what he introduces in this chapter? The Spirit. In fact, let me just show you this. Watch this. Verse 5, Galatians 5. This is why you need a Bible. Look here, Galatians 5, 5. Through the Spirit. Look over here at uh, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Verse 17, the Spirit, the Spirit. Look at verse 22, the Spirit. Look over here at verse 25, the Spirit, the Spirit. That's about eight times. What is the key to having victory over the reality of the flesh, the intensity of the battle? The secret to victory is walking by the Spirit. Be in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And you know how you say, well, how do we know that we're going to do that? How do you know that's going to take place in my life? Well, if you get up, And you discipline yourself every morning. I didn't say if you got up and felt like it. Who feels like going to the gym? Oh, Lord, it's Monday morning. Tomorrow morning, I cannot wait to get down there. And Blake, make me pass out today. I'm just looking forward to passing out because I've done, you know, 132 push-ups or something. I just, you know, what? You have to discipline yourself to do it. I'm going to do this. And then once I get into the pattern of doing it, that's where revival begins to work in your life. And do you know what you have? You have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. I'm not going to talk about all the deeds of the flesh. Do you see that there? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all of these things. We got that down. I don't need to practice that been practicing it but now there's something else operating in my life and what is it doing it's producing love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control and you see what he says in this whole thing look back up at verse 13 he says don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh why He says, through love, serve one another. That's what they had stopped doing. They'd stopped loving each other. They'd stopped serving each other. That's why he comes in verse 14 and he says, listen, the whole law is fulfilled in the Woodward statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's revival right there. That's the work of God. That's the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing an extraordinary result. Verse 26, the last verse of this chapter, he says, let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, all of that goes. Do you know what happens in your life when you begin to love other people and you begin to serve other people and you begin to look at other people in a way that you've not looked at them in a long time and you're no longer boastful and you're no longer challenging and you're no longer envying those people? That's revival. That's how you'll know. It won't be some crazy something that happens in the fellowship. It'll be when we in humility begin to genuinely love each other. Now, let me tell you something. You know what that does? It attracts the world because the world ain't got anything like that. But they see. A people loving, serving, caring for one another. And they say, I want in on some of that. Let's stand. Now, you know, I bet you're as worn out as I am. That wears you out. But that's a good feeling, is when the Word of God just kind of works you over. And I've learned something out of it. And I'm going to walk out of here having learned something from the Word of God about how I can fight this flesh, this battle that's raging. I don't have to just give in, but there's a way to victory. Maybe you're here this morning and listen, let me tell you something. That's not true of your life if you don't know Jesus Christ. You can't battle the flesh. Maybe this morning God's speaking to your heart. You're saying, Lord, I want to be set free. I want freedom. I want liberty. I want to be free from this sin. So I'm going to come and I'm going to put my trust and my faith in you. You know what you need to do is you just need right now in your heart to pray, Lord Jesus, I just thank you for going to a cross and dying for me. And Lord Jesus, I just thank you for being raised from the dead so that you can give me not just eternal life, but so that your spirit lives in me and that your spirit is the one who gives me the power that I can say no to sin And Yes to the things of God. If you just prayed that prayer, I'm standing here. I want to talk to you. I want you to come to me. I want you to slip out from wherever you are. Others of you need to come and join this church. Others of you just need to get down here to the altar and just deal with the Lord. There's something in your life you need to deal with him about. Some of you young people here, I'm convinced because you've told me God's calling you to ministry. You've struggled with it. Listen, stop struggling with God's call on your life. Just surrender to it. I can tell you right now, you will not win. In surrendering, you win. In running from it, you don't. Father, in these moments, do what honors you. Do what glorifies you. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come in this spirit of prayer? Would you slip out right now? And make your way here to the altar. Just to come and pray. To come and make a decision. Come right now. Just slip out and make that decision right now. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.